You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Obesity, can the second most preventable cause of death in the United States actually be prevented? You are listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sandra Carson, a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Brown University Medical School and the director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility of Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. When one thinks of life-threatening conditions, cancer and heart disease immediately come to mind. Obesity is not generally thought of as a life-threatening illness, but when it comes to avoidable causes of death, obesity is the second most preventable cause of death in the United States. Hypertension, diabetes, cancer, sleep apnea, and multiple other serious conditions are all directly related to body mass index. Physicians have a responsibility to not only treat this increasingly common problem, but to prevent it long before it becomes a mortal condition. Today, we are joined by Dr. Carson to discuss the causes and consequences of obesity. Welcome, Dr. Carson. Thank you. Now, there are a number of ways to define obesity. Which one do you find most useful? I find the body mass index definition of obesity the one that's most helpful because it takes into consideration both height and weight. And the definition of obesity using the body mass index is a body mass index greater than 30. Uh, You can calculate the body mass index by weighing uh, a patient in kilograms and measuring her height and then dividing by the weight by the height squared. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Very few offices actually measure height. I think most people rely on the patient's recollection of how tall they were when they were 20. And uh, that height changes. People get shorter and they get bigger. Sometimes they don't even weigh patients. That's really scary. You know, I think we're all aware of the calories in, calories out reason for the obesity epidemic in this country. But are there reasons for weight gain that are not specifically related to the amount of food someone eats and the amount of energy expended? In other words, the patient who insists that they eat nothing but continues to gain weight, is that ever the case? And can you address some of the reasons why that might be the case? I'm afraid that the sad truth is that you cannot gain weight without eating. Now, some people might need less food to gain the same amount of weight than others, but there's no possible way that patients can gain weight without eating. There are some hormonal problems that decrease patients' metabolism and make them gain weight much more easily. However, they still have to eat in order to gain weight. What about the vitamins, minerals, food supplements, any medications? Does that ever get in the way? Sometimes medicines make us hungry. There are Mm -hmm. certain medicines, especially steroids, that make patients hungry. Testosterone, for example, can make patients want to eat, but no medicines actually put on weight. Now, sometimes calcium, for example, is oftentimes given in the form of caramels Mm -hmm. or Tums, and those have calories. Sure, you eat enough of them. 
you're going to gain a lot of weight. That's right. So, for example, there's a small calcium supplement that comes in the caramel that has 25 calories. Well, if you eat 25 calories more per day than you need to eat to maintain your normal processes, over the course of a year, you'll gain two pounds. Mm -hmm. Do you think that eating patterns matter? You know, what time of day, how much at one point versus small meals throughout the day? In general, eating patterns don't matter as long as the total calorie intake is below the expenditure. So if you if some patients eat small meals throughout the day and their total calorie is less than they expend and need, they will lose weight. If patients eat one meal a day and it's more in that meal than their entire calorie expenditure and basal metabolic needs, then they'll gain weight. So although it matters how much total, it doesn't matter how many meals. <laughs> So the, the business about you shouldn't eat after 6 o'clock at night doesn't really fly. No, I'm afraid not. Yeah. What should the physician focus on during the physical exam beyond the basics of height and weight? Patients who have weight problems oftentimes have different body shapes, so to speak, the classic apple and pear mm -hmm. uh, measurement. And what this really is, is it's a weight distribution that is more central than peripheral. And women who have more central obesity, that is around their waist with smaller hips and smaller breasts, Mm -hmm. um, actually have a higher risk of heart disease and hypertension. And it's probably because the fatty acids and the fat storage get delivered much more quickly to the liver and to the circulation and get laid down in the arteries than uh, women who have most of their weight in their hips or in their breasts. Is there a way to know that for sure, short of just eyeballing it? Patients who have a waist measurement greater than 35 inches or greater than 80 centimeters are at increased risk for hypertension. Can you comment on yo-yo weight loss? My understanding is that women that yo-yo up and down are at greater risk for heart disease than someone who's consistently overweight. Although the data isn't absolutely ascertained, it appears that patients who do fluctuate widely in their weight seem to be at higher risk. The reason might be because as the fat is broken down, it's circulated and can be laid in the vessels. And so it's sort of like having a high-fat diet when you're losing weight. Mm -hmm. And so if you go back up, the fat is laid down. Then um, when it's broken up, there's a lot of fat in the circulation. So probably yo-yo dieting is most likely a health risk. Even though we tell them otherwise, we all have patients that insist that even if they're eating healthy, if they have no evidence of diabetes, heart disease, that they're not putting themselves at risk based on their weight alone. And I guess the question is, can someone be obese and be healthy? Certainly patients who are obese can be healthier than other patients who are obese, but that's a risk factor. Can somebody smoke and not get lung cancer? Well, yes, but the chances are lower than if you don't smoke than if you do. Same thing with obesity. Chances are that you're more likely to get heart disease. You're more likely to um, become ill and have risks if you are obese than if you have a normal weight. And that chance of getting heart disease and even of dying is fourfold higher in obese women than in non 
obese women. Which is, of course, significant. And every day, probably 20 times a day, my patients tell me that taking hormone replacement is the cause of their weight gain. Isn't there actually some evidence that estrogen replacement therapy can decrease the chance that someone will be overweight? That's actually correct. Hormones don't at least estrogen replacement doesn't have any calories. Right. So by taking estrogen, they won't gain weight. Now, the average weight gain through the menopausal transition in the United States is about 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. If patients take hormones, they think it's because of the hormones, but you actually gain a little bit more weight if you don't take hormones. And when you do gain weight, if you're not on estrogen replacements, then the weight is distributed much more centrally and puts you at higher health risk than the weight that's distributed more in the hips or in the breasts, which is where estrogen tends to put it. And while we're on the subject of estrogen, the perception on the part of most women, and unfortunately many doctors, is that estrogen users are exponentially increasing their risk of developing breast cancer, when in reality, obesity is a much greater relative risk for breast cancer. So can you discuss how significant the impact of obesity is on the risk of breast cancer in this country? This information is uh, really quite new in just being gathered, but patients who are obese have a higher risk of breast cancer, and it's looking like that's even magnified more if they smoke cigarettes. The patients who take estrogen alone are not at increased risk for breast cancer. I wish you could say that 20 times. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it amazing? Yes. Patients um, are so frightened of taking estrogen, but unwarranted. Patients on estrogen alone do not have an increased risk of breast cancer. It was um, only one particular regimen where patients took estrogen every day and were older, about average age of 63, 63 yeah. and that took estrogen every day that had an increased risk of breast cancer. And so now patients on estrogen alone don't have an increased risk of breast cancer, don't have an increased risk of stroke. And so we're able to give estrogen alone. And then in order to protect the uterus, we can give progesterone in another way, such for example, vaginally, that hopefully will protect the uterus and not increase the risk of breast cancer. Thanks to Dr. Sandra Carson, who has been our guest and has shared her expertise on the causes and consequences of the obesity epidemic. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? 
I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you, the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.